0: You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. To find out more about the journal, and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP, or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. Today it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Matthew M. Finnerin on behalf of his co-authors to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series to review their work, Comparison of Azithromycin versus Erythromycin for Prolongation of Latency in Pregnancies Complicated by Preterm Premature Rupture of Membranes. Preterm premature rupture of membranes occurs in approximately 30 to 40% of all preterm births and can be associated with increased risk of perinatal morbidity. In the absence of contraindications, expectant management of pregnancies complicated by preterm premature rupture of membranes is felt beneficial to reduce some of the risks of prematurity. For more than two decades, administration of maternal antibiotics in the setting of preterm premature rupture membranes has been associated with reduced neonatal morbidity and increased latency from the time of rupture membranes to delivery. In this study, the authors compared latency from the time of antibiotic administration to delivery between traditional antibiotic combinations of erythromycin and ampicillin and ampicillin and a single dose of azithromycin. This study is a retrospective cohort examining a change in practice over time between 2012 and 2016, and included 84 patients in the erythromycin group and 78 patients in the azithromycin group. The mean latency did not differ between the groups. With mean latency in the erythromycin group of 6.37 days, compared to 5.86 days in the azithromycin group. Pertinent secondary outcomes indicated an increased risk of cesarean delivery in the erythromycin group and an increased rate of neonatal sepsis in the erythromycin group, 13.6% versus 4.1%. Overall, the authors conclude that substitution of a single dose of azithromycin for erythromycin in pregnancies complicated by preterm premature of membranes does not affect latency to delivery. Dr. Fennerin, thank you very much for joining us today on this podcast and congratulations on your manuscript.
1: Well, thank you. Of course, happy to be here and uh, have the opportunity to talk further about it.
0: So can you tell us what your main motivation was for this investigation?
1: Yeah, the underlying rationale for the study was actually somewhat born out of necessity in the fact that at the time I was a third-year resident at Carolina's Medical Center and there was a national erythromycin shortage. And so we had typically done what is kind of the national standard of two days of IV erythromycin, followed by five days oral, along with the ampicillin, amoxicillin regimen. Uh, And then we just didn't have it on formulary anymore. And so the obvious substitution was for azithromycin. And certainly there's some literature out there that would support the potential substitution. But at the time, there was not anything published in terms of actually comparing outcomes. And so we ended up using that opportunity to be able to study this and sort of uh, out of necessity at that time. And further, there's obviously, we've found a lot of variation in practice since we've kind of undertaken this project and spoken with other colleagues. And so, you know, the underlying importance has sort of just grown from the original idea in terms of what it could mean for practice.
0: Can you just give us a little background for your audience onto the role of antibiotics for preterm premature rupture of membranes?
1: As we know that prematurity underlines a majority of the neonatal morbidity and mortality uh, in our subspecialty, one of the most significant contributing factors to that is PPROM. And as we know, the patients with early rupture of membranes, uh, one of the major underlying factors to when they deliver is when they get infected. And so we know that these patients have a significant risk for ascending infection and subsequent uterine irritation and labor and delivery also removed from the fact that we then consider that scenario to be at risk, you know, the fetus to be at risk for neonatal infection, morbidity with um, sepsis and meningitis and other things.
0: So it sounds like preterm premature rupture of membranes can cause increased perinatal morbidity and can shorten the time that they may stay pregnant. Which antibiotics and what did we think the role of giving antibiotics were in helping improving those outcomes.
1: Right, because, you know, we understand that the underlying reason for delivering a lot of these patients is infection, and so antibiotics, you know, being the obvious therapy in that scenario, a lot of research has gone on to really try to understand the underlying microbiology of this condition, and really the answer is it's polymicrobial, which is where this antibiotic choice comes from. You know, we have the ampicillin, amoxicillin regimen, which covers a lot of our gram positive organisms, but there's also a predominant organisms such as ureoplasma, mycoplasma, that some studies have shown to be the predominant pathogen in women that have preterm rupture of membranes and deliver early. And so the addition of a second antibiotic for a broader spectrum in erythromycin or azithromycin is kind of underlines the reasoning for the antibiotic choices in PPROM management.
0: How do the erythromycin and ampicillin and erythromycin and azithromycin compare to antibiotics that were used in other studies?
1: Whenever you're trying to substitute a medication in pregnancy that doesn't have a lot of data, you're looking to other areas where it may potentially have been researched with similar outcomes. And so one of the studies in which allowed us to have some assurance of the safety data as a randomized controlled trial of the treatment of chlamydia infections in pregnancy with azithromycin versus erythromycin, which showed no difference in that study similar to ours, but also further data on the safety profile.
0: So certainly, it seems that to try to improve these outcomes that a broad-spectrum antibiotic choice like AMPIN, Erythro, or AMPIN-Azithro, or I know some other studies have used broader spectrum antibiotics may affect the microbiology that affects the morbidity. How can you compare the pharmacokinetics or the activity of erythromycin and azithromycin? You know, how similar are they and the pros and cons for each one?
1: obviously that's the question that underlines the purpose of the study why is a substitution necessary and so azithromycin and erythromycin actually have the same mechanism of action they bind to the 50s ribosomal subunit and they inhibit mrna translation but there's a vast difference in you know the underlying pharmacokinetics between azithromycin and erythromycin they're both macrolide antibiotics erythromycin has a 14 member ring and azithromycin is a 15 member ring but azithromycin has the addition of a nitrogen atom which has been found to really stabilize the molecule enough that they actually you know some people put it in a subclass of macrolide antibiotics called the azolides and so this change to the molecular structure actually leads to an extended tissue penetration prolonged intracellular half-life and that underlines a decreased dosing regimen that can lead to decreased cost theoretically has a similar spectrum to erythromycin there is activity some activity Against gram-positive organisms, Staphylococcus, H flu, you know, and certainly intracellular organisms such as Chlamydia and atypical organisms such as urea plasma, like we already talked about. And so there is a little bit of a greater action that seems that azithromycin has against H influenza. But overall, the spectrum between the two medications are the same. And the benefit is underlined by the fact that azithromycin stays around intracellularly much longer than erythromycin and has sort of a slow release. Azithromycin has a rapid intracellular uptake, either IV or oral dosing regimen, So the serum levels actually tend to be very low because the levels of azithromycin quickly become intracellular. There is some data to show that azithromycin is actually uptaken into the fibroblasts and phagocytes intracellularly, and it can last for up to 24 hours in the phagocytes and up to 72 hours in the fibroblasts, which is in comparison to erythromycin. It's been seen to be only about 30 minutes in the Phagocytes and a few hours for the fibroblasts, which leads to you know some interesting kind of potential outcomes because obviously phagocytes are you know integral to the immune response and actually there's some idea that its ability to remain within immune cells such as the phagocyte actually leads to like kind of targeted delivery to the infectious tissue. There's also some interesting, I would say, underlying changes to azithromycin that are a little bit more pronounced when compared to erythromycin and the fact that its activity is increased in a basic substance. That's particularly important when we're talking about azithromycin and erythromycin in terms of PPROM because obviously our major target would hopefully be the amniotic fluid. And so the minimum inhibitory concentration of bacteria such as ureoplasma is sometimes up to 500 nanograms per milliliter. But some studies have shown that when you add serum to the assay, which would be more like a in vivo response because the serum has a pH of 7, it actually increases the susceptibility of the bacteria to the antibiotic, sometimes 30-fold to 60-fold, depending on which bacteria it is. So the amniotic fluid is of a similar pH, and so you can find that lower levels are necessary to cause eradication of a bacterial colonization than would typically be needed in other body tissues.
0: So it seems that erythromycin and azithromycin certainly have a similar spectrum of action, and there may be some added benefits from the prolongation of the effects of a single dose of azithromycin and maybe some better penetration to the tissues that we are trying to target. So what dosing of antibiotics then did you study in this investigation?
1: It's an interesting question because the dosage that we used was one gram oral once to substitute the entire erythromycin regimen. As we went through some of the literature search and uh, kind of preparation for the manuscript, we found some you know animal studies that point to the potential that a single dosing regimen may not be sufficient. The original dosage was chosen based upon you know again some other studies, the randomized controlled trial of one gram once for chlamydial infections. There actually is a registered randomized controlled trial of azithromycin versus erythromycin that you can see on the RCT website. It does say that it's completed, but there was no published data from that. But if you look at their methods, they also used one gram once. But there was a study that was actually really well done published in AJOG by Ramsey et al. And what they did was they gave patients one gram of azithromycin oral once at varying time points before just a scheduled cesarean section at 6, 12, 24, 72, and 168 hours before the C-section. And then they just looked at where did this drug go? What are the levels and, you know, in the myometrium and adipose tissue, the amniotic fluid? And they found that the amniotic fluid concentration at 12 hours is actually fairly low, about 30 nanograms per milliliter in their study. And that maximum concentration was achieved within six hours with somewhat of a slow gradual decrease over the next 72 hours. Our goal is for sterilization of the amniotic fluid compartment then some of these data would suggest that a multiple dosing regimen may be necessary. And so we discussed this in the discussion because I think it's important when you have a paper that may potentially call for a substitution of what is considered standard of care, that we kind of talk about, you know, what would be the pitfalls of doing that and to inform clinical practice. And so while we did not find a difference in latency within this study, I think that some of the other data out there would suggest that you may potentially need to dose azithromycin daily rather than this single one gram load.
0: So, what was the primary outcome in your study?
1: Our primary outcome was latency from membrane rupture to time of delivery.
0: Were there any important or notable secondary outcomes noted in this study?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We noticed that there was An increased cesarean delivery rate within our population as well as an overall rate of increased sepsis in the erythromycin group, both for C-section and sepsis were seen in the erythromycin group. And so when you find these differences, you know, in comparison to the other study that was published, also a retrospective series by Pearson et al, looking at these two antibiotic regimens and PPROM, they didn't find any difference in the neonatal outcomes. And so we start to take a step back and it's like, what's the biologic plausibility of this truly being caused by the antibiotics? And certainly this came up in peer review as well. And we think that it's unlikely that erythromycin would increase the cesarean section rate. And at our institution, we really took the kind of practice guidance that was published in 2014 on redefining labor, arrest of labor, when to do a C-section. And the cesarean section rate at Carolina's Medical Center, you know, after 2014 actually had seen a dramatic drop. And I think potentially that's something that um, is confounding the fact that cesarean delivery was more common in erythromycin as that group was between 2012 and 2014. And the azithromycin group would have been during the entire duration after the publication of those practice guidelines. As far as neonatal sepsis. Again, I think that there's maybe potential that you, you know, by antibiotic exposure, you could change the immune response of a baby and susceptibility to infection. But again, save for the pharmacokinetics, these medications have a similar spectrum and it would be unlikely that you would have an increased sepsis rate. And so we looked into that more in more detail after peer review and actually pulled all the pathogens that were positive on the neonatal blood cultures. And what we found was that there was two babies that had coag-negative staphylococcus and three babies that had a MRSA infection in the erythromycin group. You know, we talked with our neonatologist and he confirmed that also in the timeframe of the erythromycin group that there was a period of time where there was a MRSA kind of outbreak within the NICU at our institution and those five infections are most likely to just be nosocomial ICU-related events and not likely to be secondary to the antibiotic exposure. And so we tried to make that clear in the discussion because we do not think that there's biologic plausibility for an increased septic rate and that azithromycin may be superior to erythromycin, I think that that's just one of the limitations of the study of, you know, these groups were non-concurrent. And, you know, there are definitely some variables there that can't be controlled for over a four-year duration of time of two non-concurrent groups.
0: One of your outcomes was cesarean delivery, and you postulate that it had to do with differences in practices of management of labor. Were you able to look at the indications for the cesarean deliveries and determine if those were similar or different between the two groups?
1: We didn't look at the reason for cesarean delivery specifically, but we did look at the reason for delivery overall. Because as we know, practice guidelines in the United States would suggest delivery greater than 34 weeks, regardless of labor status, certainly fetal indications of suspected intrauterine infection. And so, we did not see a difference between you know, overall reason for delivery, whether it was labor or infection or gestational age. There was a trend towards significance in the erythromycin group. Uh, there was uh, 17% versus 7% were delivered for fetal distress. The p-value was 0.09 in that group. Potentially, there's also some underlying variables just within the labor process of these patients, but there was no overall difference between the reason why patients were delivered.
0: And so then the primary finding from your study regarding latency between the two antibiotics demonstrated
1: primary outcome, which was latency from P-Prom to delivery, was that there was no difference between the group that received erythromycin or azithromycin. The erythromycin group had a median latency of 6.37 days, and the azithromycin group was similar at 5.86 days these numbers in particular are lower than what was reported in the Pearson et al study we had some discussions of you know what's the best way to report this data as a whole latency is not something that is a normally distributed variable we know that there's many things that underlie how short or long a baby's latency or a fetus's latency to delivery might be you know time of rupture exposure to infection so on and so forth and so We report median values in our paper, whereas there was average values reported in the Pearson et al. paper. It would be a convention to report median values when the data in and of itself is not normally distributed. And so that was the decision that we went with publishing these values. And so we wanted to make that clear because on the surface of it, it looks as, you know, our latency data is a good 72 hours shorter than the other published study. But I think that that has to do with the type of descriptive statistics used.
0: Your time to event analysis or survival curve also demonstrates no difference in the time to delivery, which I think is another good way of looking at a time to event from an intervention in a study. Absolutely. So I think you talked about some of the limitations in your study, one being that this was obviously a sort of a forced change in practice due to availability of your antibiotics. And as we know over time, many different interventions can change in that time were there any other limitations in your study that you guys found or got your attention
1: yeah you know we looked at the underlying demographics in terms of differences between the population both from demographic standpoint and maybe an exposure standpoint and the only difference that we saw was tocolytic exposure it's a phenomenon that i really can't explain other than just practice change and physician choice. There has certainly been some data, some randomized control trials that have shown that tocolytics do not affect latency to delivery. Now, these were somewhat of underpowered trials, but we don't believe that tocolysis would cause that. However, just from a standpoint of trying to be as statistically valid as possible, we included that variable in a multivariate logistic regression model and controlled for the fact of whether a patient had tocolysis or not. But otherwise, there really was not any underlying difference between the two groups seen in this
0: study. How do you guys suggest incorporating these results into clinical practice? Do you have erythromycin back? Did you switch back to erythromycin? What is your group doing now based on this data?
1: I think it's an interesting question because the state of the literature on this topic would be now two retrospective cohort studies you have a, you know, a little over 300 patients if pooled, and, you know, we certainly know the bias potential for a retrospective study. There's just a huge amount of practice variation out there. When we were presenting this data at the SMFM meeting this year, I just anecdotally asked people, and, you know, many physicians coming around to the poster, you know, were using the typical regimen with erythromycin IV. Some people were using azithromycin IV. Others were using what we were using, the one gram once. There's the multi-dose regimen. I even had someone come up and say, kind of referencing the literature, saying there's not a lot of penetration to the field compartment with either erythromycin or azithromycin, and azithromycin. They actually use clarithromycin. In reviewing this information in detail. I agree azithromycin and erythromycin have decreased penetration to the amniotic fluid, but you know, as discussed before, because of the underlying physiology of how the drug works and the minimum inhibitory concentrations in the amniotic fluid, you don't need as much of a concentration. So I think that the literature would suggest even with that decreased transfer to the amniotic fluid, it's still effective. But in terms of, you know, changing practice, I mean of course the ideal would be to have a prospective look at this topic, I think it's difficult to power appropriately. You know, when we did a post hoc power analysis, we had a power to, you know, notice a latency difference of three days. As we know, 72 hours is somewhat of a broad time range, is that level of granularity clinically significant? But if you used the standard deviation of the latency in our study and tried to even bring that down to just 24 hours, you'd need over 500 patients per group. And if you wanted it to just be 12 hours, you'd need over 2,000 patients per group. From a standpoint of feasibility, I think that you would have to do something that's potentially multi-centered and prospective to answer this question. But from a standpoint of what there is out there, I mean, we have a study that is showing you know, very clear pharmacokinetics of azithromycin in human women prior to undergoing cesarean section. You have good animal studies that are showing that either in monkeys or sheep inoculated with urea plasma, that administration of azithromycin can cause sterility of the amniotic fluid compartment. And then again, we have these two retrospective series that is looking at a relatively large amount of patients that is not showing any glaring difference between Between the two treatment regimens. I think if you take a literature as a whole and you kind of piece the puzzle together, I don't think it's unreasonable for clinicians to choose azithromycin over erythromycin based upon what's out there even in the absence of prospective study. Certainly there is, as we spoke about before, you know a multitude of reasons why azithromycin would be beneficial but what is most interesting to some degree is just the cost savings. We had a sister poster to this study at SMFM. and I took some of the data from the BEAM study looking at magnesium sulfate for the prevention of cerebral palsy and actually pulled out all the patients that were PPROM that received a penicillin antibiotic and erythromycin and calculated the dropout rate and then just two theoretical groups of what would be the cost if you used IV erythro versus oral azithro and if you used a single one dose regimen of oral azithro is 98% cheaper, cost $18,000 for the entire cohort of women of a thousand plus patients. Whereas if you went through the whole erythromycin IV and PO regimen, it was over $700,000 for the same population. So cost-saving Potential is substantial. And so whether or not clinicians feel comfortable switching from something that has been prospectively studied in a randomized fashion to something that has some data behind it, but yet no prospective studies, I think that that remains the discussion.
0: I think you touched on one of the last questions I had, which is, what do you think the future areas of research should be? Does this warrant a large network type randomized control trial? Or what would you recommend seeing how to move this forward in the future? I think it's somewhat
1: of a difficult question because of the expense, the time, the resources to study something, which at this point you know, would seem that it would be mainly for a cost benefit. I think it's hard to know whether going down that route is 100% the right idea when you have at least some data showing non-inferiority and then like we spoke about some of the other animal studies and pharmacokinetic studies that have been done. From a standpoint of a multi-centered network trial, I think it's certainly feasible from a standpoint of answering the question. It's just whether or not the question is important enough to be answered in that fashion or if we as a society and specialty say that the data that we have there and that can also be extrapolated from other well-designed non-pregnancy trials, whether it warrants further large-scale prospective study. I've spoken actually with some infectious disease doctors and to their point, they would say it doesn't. There's enough data in other subspecialties and disease states that show similar efficacy aforementioned benefits of azithromycin that they would say it's already proven that they're equal. I think that you could debate that based upon obviously all the unique changes physiologically in pregnancy but certainly in the non-obstetric realm, azithromycin is well accepted as equivalent to erythromycin.
0: Dr. Finner, and thank you very much for taking time with us today. Congratulations on your manuscript. I think this is an area that touches most obstetricians and neonatologists. And I think some thoughtful review. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tina.com forward slash
1: AJP. Or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. If you
0: enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. And join us next time when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.